Welcome back to Rough Draft episode eight, after a little bit of time off the air. Um, finally, here has kept me pretty busy, thanks in part to today's guest, Kevin J. Doyle. Uh, how are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing very well, Jamie. Great to chat. Brilliant. Um, I'd imagine that most people listening uh, are DCU students who are probably just excited to, to hear some more of your, your interesting you know, backstory. Um, but for outsiders, I guess, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, as you said, my name is Kevin J. Doyle. Not to confuse me with another Kevin Doyle who's in media in Ireland. I'm the original. Um, so, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a hybrid at the moment. I was a journalist for almost um, 20 years and I've been in academia for six years. And most of my experience is in Southeast Asia. Very little journalism experience in Ireland. In fact, none um, really to speak of. A little bit, but not very much. Freelance, you know, sorry, writing overseas stories for Irish market, but I've never really worked in Ireland as a journalist. That's me in a nutshell. I mean, you've a lot more common with most of our listeners than I would have thought, you know, that not working very much in Ireland as a journalist. So that's it's good to get off on a, a, a bit in common. Um, but so your whole, one of the, I think one of the things that sets you apart mostly from other lectures at DCU that I've known is your whole sort of international experience and the, the time that you spent over in Cambodia at the Cambodia Daily. So how did you even get into that to begin with? It seems like such a, an adventurous type, you know, situation to find yourself in. Yeah, um, I kind of have those two, those two periods. But, well, I've been in, involved with Cambodia since a very young age, which is one of those countries that kind of, you know, what happened to it gripped my imagination at a very young age. And that's because I stumbled across, of all things, a book. And I read a book about the Cambodian civil war and then the genocide afterwards. And what shocked me most is that I knew, really knew nothing about Cambodia. And I was probably reading this book 10 years after the genocide, even longer. And um, I was so shocked. I didn't know that too many people had, had you know, been, had died, been killed in such circumstances, you know, in, in the 20th century. And, and it, it just shocked me. You know, we heard an awful lot about the war in Vietnam, but so little about Cambodia, which was the sideshow. So from a very young age, I was just captivated by what took place in Cambodia. And I, I didn't go the normal route. People go through school third level education, I didn't do that. I got myself off to Cambodia at a very young age and worked as a volunteer. Um, and no one would hire me to go there. So I went, basically I got on a plane and eventually after six months, I had to go through India to get to Cambodia because um, uh, Cambodia you had to be sponsored to go into the country in those days because it was still under a communist regime. So you couldn't just arrive. An organization had to sponsor your arrival there. And I couldn't get any agency to sponsor my, my you know, I wanted to be a worker as a volunteer in the, you know, development sector so I just went I left Ireland went through India and through India serendipitous meetings eventually an organization um, agreed for me to go and work with them in Cambodia so I spent almost two years um, in Cambodia at quite a young age and when I came back to Ireland I went to university then so I was a bit older than most of the people in my class only a few years um, and I studied communications then I got my master's degree in the MAJ in, in DCU in journalism and I graduated from DCU with the master's and I got a very well-paying job in Dublin um, working in what do you say public relations and communications for a non-governmental organization which was a great job you know really great job I was in the area I really enjoyed being in talking about development inequality poverty but you kind of knew that you weren't really, you know, you were kind of faking it, you know? And I said, the only way I'm ever going to be able to, you know, say that, you know, I understand journalism, I understand communications, if I do journalism in the most, you know, difficult circumstances possible. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back to Cambodia and work as a journalist. And at that time, Cambodia was, you know, there'd been a coup in 1997. So this would be 1998. So I went and the, there was two newspapers in Cambodia. It was the Phnom Penh Post and the Cambodia Daily. And they were arch rivals. The Phnom Penh Post was a much more beautiful newspaper, but it only came out fortnightly. It was broadsheet, colour, did really in-depth pieces because they had two weeks to, to write their stories. And then there was this scrappy little Cambodia Daily, which came out daily. And uh, it was black and white, it was small format. Even before, you know, Berlin and Guardian went small format. The Cambodia Daily was small. And there was reasons for that, apart from production costs. Um, 
So I said, okay, I threw my lot in with the Cambodia Daily and I ended up spending 15 years at the Cambodia Daily more or less. And I became the editor in chief, I suppose, after a few years there, I rose up through the ranks. But I'd also worked for, for, for Reuters during that time in Cambodia too. So that's how, big, long story. <laughs> that's how I ended up in Cambodia. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't even, I, I, I obviously, I hadn't known the sort of the backstory to that before, but that's, that's mad that you kind of had such a longing for this, you know, to leave everything behind in Ireland with a good job and to, to go and, wow, that's, didn't know what answer I was expecting, but that's, that's incredible. Um, so like, it must've been quite a, a transition to make, to go from like, you know, Celtic Tiger Ireland to a place that had just recently gone through such a very dark period and was just in the beginning of like its recovery. Was there a, like a culture shock when you, when you first arrived? Well, it's funny because as I said, I worked there before my degrees as an NGO, an aid worker, you know, a volunteer. I wasn't getting paid anything like the professional aid industry staff get paid. I worked for basically nothing. Um, and that kind of can me felt like, okay, I could justify my presence here. Um, I'm not, you know, it's not costing anyone for me to be in Cambodia for these couple of years as a volunteer. Um, so I knew what Cambodia was like, but I didn't know what it was like working as a, um, as, as a journalist. And of course, you know, going from, you're right, it was just, pre, it was the very beginning of the Celtic Tiger, the kind of nice kind of cozy period in Ireland when I hadn't gone completely crazy. I missed the Celtic Tiger and it's one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life that I wasn't here during the crazy. I used to come back, you know, every one or two years and all people talked about was mortgages. Now they just talk about not being able to get mortgages, which is just as bad as pendulum <laughs> swing. They were drinking champagne on weekend nights and going shopping in New York. That play, I, I didn't recognize Ireland and I was so glad I missed it all. Um, uh, of course, I'm back here for the tail end with the devastation of it, you know. But then again, I grew up in Ireland in the 1980s. So we had it then, we have it now. It's, it's the same country, just the inequality has just, you know, increased tenfold, fiftyfold. And I think it was just, I'm kind of segueing here a little bit, but at least in the 1980s, we knew what the problem was. You know, now, nowadays we don't really see what the problem is because you've moved into a kind of post-ideological age where we can't actually name what the, what the problems are, what, what structures are causing, the, you know, this cycles of, you know, boom and bust and inequality and, and, and wealth. Yes, it was a huge um, culture shock to start as a journalist at the Cambodia Daily because Cambodia was, an, you know, it was authoritarian, it was a re- unique in Southeast Asia in that it was the only country that had a free press, basically, in all of Southeast Asia, where you still had an authoritarian government, lots of political violence, human rights abuses, massive poverty. But Cambodia was unique in that there there was two newspapers doing serious journalism, unlike Vietnam. Okay, Thailand had the Bangkok Post and the nation, but, you know, they, they were under much stricter kind of laws than we would have been in Cambodia. We'd much more range to do what we're doing as journalists, Malaysia, Singapore, you couldn't do what we, what we were doing in Cambodia or Indonesia, you know? So it was a really unique position we were in. There were English language newspapers. Ours had a Khmer edition. So we put out, a, you know, all our national news is translated into Khmer every night as well. So yeah, and, and the biggest transition, most difficult thing, we worked so hard at the Cambodia Daily. I mean, it was 12 hour days, you know, minimum every day you know that was a, I, I never really understood what it would be like to work as a journalist and then I got my I suppose you call it a hazing at the Cambodia Daily and you know I came in quite inexperienced as I said I hadn't worked in the newsroom I'd written feature stories and freelance for some magazines but I never worked as a daily you know beat reporter in a, in, a, in a you know anywhere and then to work at the Cambodia Daily where there was a lot of things to cover, a lot of really serious issues, quite edgy and dangerous. And we worked hard on, you know, minimal resources. So that was the hardest thing to adjust to that. And it was, it was hard, but you know, you either, you had to sink or swim. Oh, thankfully, um, I, I, I learned to swim. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. Um, and so you would have been, I think, around 28 when you became editor of the Cambodia Daily. Is that, is that right? Maybe a little bit older, but about, yeah. Still, Still a bit older than that. 
it's still quite you know relatively young you know was that like was it a, you know a difficult thing to get into with uh, yeah yeah i have a funny story about that uh, jamie because um it was i was the first let me see I was the first non-American to ever be there because it was an American back news. Well, not back. The owner was American. He was a former Newsweek correspondent who had covered East Asia through the 1950s and 60s and had lived in, in, in Japan for 35, 40 years. He's very well known. His name was Bernard Krischer. And he had covered Cambodia before the war. And then, so he, you know, a lot of the, the correspondents who remember Cambodia before the civil war and the genocide always had, you know, this, what, what, what would you call it? A kind of melancholy, melancholy, yeah, melancholia for, 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 for the society that was destroyed by the American intervention. And then as the war spilled over for Vietnam. So a lot of them really took an interest in Cambodia through the dark days of the 70s, 1980s. And then when the country began to, open up with the UN peacekeeping mission in 1991, 1992. Um, Bernard Krischer and, and others, you know, did, did, you know, try to, you know, you know, kind of support the, the, you know, the reestablishment of society there and multi-party politics and democracy. No, 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 let's, let's not talk about the politics of Cambodia because that was a huge failure in some ways. But they did, with the UN there, they did set up a constitution that allowed for free press. So Bernard Krischer, you know, as he said, he, he wasn't wealthy, but um, he had money, some money. So rather than join a, a swanky golf club in, in Japan, he invested in a newspaper in Cambodia. Now it was bare bones. And it was built on the, you know, the sweat and inspiration and dedication of its staff. And that's what the Cambodia Daily was. Um, so I was the first non-American, because we're all primarily 80% of the staff were American working with Cambodian counterparts. I was the first non-American editor-in-chief. Um, yeah, and I'd gone from being, you know, a kind of a senior reporter into this management position. So it was, it was difficult. And there was a whole cultural thing there as well. And, you know, yeah, the first, I'd say the first two years of being editor-in-chief, uh, I got my ass kicked by the staff. Then for the eight years after that, when I was editor chief, <laughs> you know, I, re I reversed the dynamic a little bit. Let's say, um, no, it was, but you no, know, the first two years was learning. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> did you learn, or did you speak Khmer at the time, or was that a thing that you had spoken or you had learned as your your days as a volunteer before this? Yeah, no, I, I spoke Khmer, luckily. Now I, I can't read or write very well. I never spent much time, you know, because we're always working all the time to actually, you know, to, to spend much time on, on the script, which is very complex, but I can read basic stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I could speak it from, from the time I was a, a young volunteer in Cambodia. So I had that advantage over probably everyone that who was doing journalism in Cambodia. So I was able to communicate. And maybe that's why they hired me from Ireland. I was the first person who was hired without an interview by the publisher. He hired me by email. Thing is, though, he he gave me gave me three weeks to arrive in Cambodia when he offered me the job. So I had to you know, pack up my bags, sell everything, and get out of Ireland in three weeks. And he gave me a one month. Um, what was it? Either you know, he, one month one month trial period. So that's it. The end of the month. If you don't work out, you can go back home. So that worked out too. <laughs> oh, I can really imagine how rough it would have been to completely like leave your life in Ireland behind, come to Cambodia, and then be told, "Nah, you're not really, you're not, you're not right for us. <laughs> Go away." Well, and um, I, I remember like our classes in the first year pretty vividly. That uh, one day you were walking around the room uh, as we were sitting around, I think typing up some story, and you just kind of said. You know, grenades are a lot louder than you'd think. What was what was that about? Like, how did you get that kind of firsthand experience with with hand grenades going off? Yeah, I, I hope I put that in context with some learning uh, elements to what I said that in the <laughs> class. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was I mean, Cambodia was you know and, and remains uh, quite a you know a. Fractious place politically, and I suppose in that period, from 1990, late 98 onwards, up until I suppose the 
you know, the mid 2000s. I mean, you know, automatic gunfire, grenade attacks and explosions. I mean, that were daily occurrences, you know, all the time. I mean, that was, you know, you, you'd watch the tracer fire over the city at night, you know, to see, I'm just, that, just, that wasn't even political violence. That was just random crime or maybe just exuberance on the part of troops or soldiers with their, their uh, AK-47. So there was, you know, there was a lot of conflict and a lot of, you know, um, grenade explosions, B-40 rockets going off, you name it, firefights in the city. And this wouldn't even be, I said, this wouldn't even be political. This could just be random, um, random shooting and, and fighting and crime at night. There was, there was, one, there was a, an attempted coup when I was there once and, um, and that was pretty hairy. Uh, but yeah, so grenade, you, you had to, but you had to, you, you had to be, be aware of this sort of stuff, you know, especially if you're covering it as a reporter. You know, you need to know the difference between, you know, a grenade blast and say a B-40 rocket propelled grenade. And then of course, different, you know, different types of, 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 of weaponry that's being used, just so you can kind of get a grasp of like, okay, is this political or could this be, you know, an attempted coup, you know, or is it just crime? So that sort of stuff became important to know. Wow, I mean, I'd, I'd, I feel like I'd love to find out those differences, but maybe, you know, from a safe distance. Have you ever, like, during your time there, felt, you know, at da- in danger yourself, like, either from just being too close to some mad shit happening, basically? <laughs> well, it's funny, because there's always the, there's the crime, which is the organised crime, see, the Chinese triads, and human trafficking, and I covered and, and, and pedophiles, international pedophiles. I covered a lot of that for at the beginning. I started out, you know, as, as a, I want to do the crime beat because no one. When I started out first, I realized everybody wants to cover politics as they do, you know, um, and I, you know, and the politics was, you know, was complex, and it was that period just after the nineteen ninety seven coup. So there was a lot of negotiations going on, but I was much more interested in crime. And was, I didn't think it's been adequately covered at the paper. So I really got into crime. I really got into, you know, um, organized crime and foreigners prefer. So I'd be foreign, foreign, foreign organized crime. So I got into really following what the triads were doing, the Chinese triads in Cambodia, and what international human trafficking and particularly international pedophiles in Cambodia. So I made a real, you know, that became my beat for years was, was, was focusing on organized crime and child sex tourism and international pedophilia and I was just thinking about something today that actually one of the investigations I did led to the first foreigner being prosecuted and jailed in Cambodia for child sexual abuse as a pedophile and because up until then the foreigners always because the court system is highly corrupt in Cambodia and politicized Um, so there was many pedophiles arrested but they were arrested and they you know they would eventually just pay bribes to the police in the courts and they would walk away in fact it was a way of the police and courts to generate money you know they they talk to- they tolerate and Cambodia's changed a lot since then um but the, the one case i covered by an english tourist um uh, pedophile child sex abuser i di- i investigated it so much that there was just a huge body of evidence and in fact the court put him in jail and he was the first one to spend any significant time in jail in Cambodia in the contemporary times. So there was the, yeah, there was the crime and then there was the political violence. So yeah, cup, yeah, there was hairy times. All, all right. You know? And um, so yeah, the, like pedophiles, I got on about the pedophiles because they were the only ones who would directly threaten me, you know? Um, whereas the, the triads were a bit different, you know, kind of, you had to be careful with them. I remember I had to go to a meeting with a Chinese triad about human trafficking. One of the, guy they agreed to talk to me you know off the record and I got my managing editor to come with me and he waited outside in case you know I get bundled out and put you know in the rubber lined trunk of a car or something like that so he waited across the road so everything was safe and um, but it was the pedophiles that were, were the most concerned because they were you know Americans English whatever else in Russian and they would they directly threaten me what I had this funny enough there's an American pedophile quite famous one who went to jail after the reporting I did on them as well. This was a bit later, this was after the first case. And an Irish couple came into my office in Phnom Penh um, and they had been in, in Saigon in Vietnam and there was, they had overheard an American talking about how he was gonna kill this Irish guy in Phnom Penh. So they got talking to him and, he, they, and they come in to tell me, oh, he's talking about how he's going to, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna kill you, you know, eventually in Phnom Penh. And you know, 
they were just tourists passing through, but they felt they should find me out and, and tell me about that. Another time, an American pedophile actually got out of jail. And the first thing he did was get on a, you know, a motorcycle taxi and drive straight to my office. And uh, I was, I got, this receptionist called me and said, oh, there's someone to see you in reception. I walk into the reception and this very large hulking man charges across the reception and attacks me, you know? So uh, it was a pedophile. So the first thing he did was come to my office. And then there was another one who came into my office and um, he, uh, he told me how he, you know, it was a very threatening situation. And he, because he was clearly mad. And he was telling me how he had fantasized about strapping grenades to his genitals and detonating them when he met me in the office there and then as I'm talking to him, you know? So uh, called him the genital bomber. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's... Oh, he'd gone to jail too, by the way. Sorry? Uh, he, he, he'd, again, this, the, the genital bomber had, had, um, had spent time in jail and then he came to visit me after he got out of jail to tell me what he planned to do, you know? That's incredible. Wow. I'd imagine, like, compared to the kind of, um, what would you even do? The, the sort of public interest thing that journalists always talk about and over here, what that means is like, oh, I've reported on, you know, uh, this business not getting a... a a license because uh you know someone at the council doesn't like them wow i've really i've really changed the world there and you know that's good but i'd imagine this sort of the sense of uh responsibility like you must feel for having like generally genuinely like affected people so fucking i can't even put it into words you know having people go to prison because literally of what you've written like that must be like an incredible feeling to know that you know, you've done your job in sort of the most literal, powerful sense that there is, you know. Mm. And it also came a great responsibility, Jamie. And I used to remind, you know, my staff, I, I pick each of the new members of staff because I primarily hired from America, you know, and I'd meet them at the airport in Phnom Penh. I'd give them, drive them into, we had accommodation for our staff. We would provide accommodation. But, you know, this is for expatriate staff. Um, and I'd give them the, you know, the kind of, the talk, as I would say, on the way in and just tell them about the responsibility, you know, about, you know, it really mattered what they did because our journalism was, was so important because, you know, it was an authoritarian society. We were standing, we, you know, we stood for free press and we were, you know, we didn't pull any punches when it came to the government, you know, um, used to call our journalism. Remember, I got arrested once uh, and Agents Front Press, uh, reported on my arrest you know and they and they described my reporting as aggressive reporting and I says yeah you're probably right about that that's exactly what we did you know <laughs> um so um, and I'd given the talk to staff about coming in about how important the job was because you know it was this meant thing, something you know people could you know could be you know could live and die by your reporting because it was that serious I mean in that sort of environment and we were lucky you know under my 10 years, you know, um, no one got killed in the process of what we did. And many other journalists got, were, I won't say many, okay, so five, six, maybe in the 10 years I was editor-in-chief. I mean, I'd say five Cambodian journalists were killed in different news organizations at the same time, you know. And then what they had, had the government dealt with us was through the courts primarily, you know. So I was in court a lot, you know, charges of defamation, undermining national security that sort of stuff wow and so like being in that sort of atmosphere of corruption and authoritarianism and you know the government just kind of trying to screw you over and that kind of thing like did that affect the way that you guys kind of conducted yourself like was there any kind of you know bending the rules a little bit to break a story you know if i you know if i have to give this chief of police you know a few 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 dollars like in, in in an envelope was that ever a thing that was considered oh absolutely never no 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 we've actually went the other way you know we actually had to be rigorous and apply the highest ethical standards in what we did i said you know and i say to my staff you know we've got you're like jedis out there you know you're on the side of the right you know in, in this atmosphere so we had to be and you know because this you know paying it goes the other way no one pays officials 
for information in, in Cambodia. It's officials pay journalists to write the stories they want. So the whole milieu of journalism in Cambodia was you're, you know, were, you were, you know, you're patronized by the powerful and they paid you well or you know a certain amount to write the stories they wanted and then then there was the Cambodia Daily who didn't take money from anyone and said what it wanted to say and you know took on the government every day I go to I remember we went to the first press conference by a French and you know I didn't cover business but it was a Saturday and there's you know there was not much on so I had to go for a, this press conference and it was a, a French it was the biggest uh, personal health insurance company at that time in the country and they're having a press conference i went into the press conference never been at one before this sort of press conference you know business and they were giving out the press releases and they all had 50 dollars stapled to the top of the press release you know <laughs> so i rip off the 50 dollars and i give it back to the, the french guys what is this and he says this is how it's done in cambodia so i wrote the story about how it's done in cambodia with the 50 dollars which was a much better story about than writing about their launch of their new product insurance product so uh, <laughs> and, and that's how it worked you know so you know large amount of monies to, to journalists and then of course they've been much more sophisticated you know 20 years on now i'm talking about you know 20 years before what they've done is rather than just pay off individual journalists they bought news brands they bought out the Phnom Penh post and they shut down the Commodia daily they've set up newspapers and websites and news that look like real news organizations you know you look at them and they've got you know the, the what you call it, production values are really high and they they hire western journalists as well but you know it's all you know pro-government uh propaganda slant dressed up as independent journalism you know so they're just that what was you know what was just cash 20 years ago is now owning the kind of means of journalist production 20 years on you know they become much more sophisticated than what they're doing. Yeah, I'd imagine this sort of the scaling up must be quite helpful. Um, but you know, aside from the 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 pedophiles and the people who want to kill you, and you know the the crime and the triads, uh, do you have any other sort of standout memories from your time? You know, as you put it, uh, as being a Jedi in Cambodia. Uh, yes, I have one actually, and it's. Uh, I don't, you know, it's it's I, you know, it must be really dreary to hear old journalists like myself bang on about their war stories, you know, like lines in winter, you know. Um, but there is one thing, and I suppose I was I've been I've been editor in chief for ten years, you know, and it was you know it was it was it was, it was quite a demanding job, you know, it was like 60, 80 hour weeks, it was you know, and and you had to leave, you know, so I'd be in work before my staff I'd leave after them because you had to set that example I would never ask any of my staff to do something I wouldn't do you know so the hairiest stories I'd actually cover them myself it was great to be editor-in-chief you could get out of the office on really big stories and you could leave it to the managing editor you know and if there were really hairy stories I'd cover them but you know you're at that for 10 years and you're like okay when's it you know what your health or you know just your you you want to have a relationship with your, with your family because you you know when you're working like that it's it's all very demanding and then you gotta say okay when do you stop when when do you draw a line in the sand when you're doing something like that in Cambodia at such a high level and you know I knew and I wanted to change as well you know and I want to do other things I've done it for 10 years I didn't know when you know when was what was going to be the moment that you stop and you think chasing your next big story there been a couple of elections where you thought the government was going to, you know, be toppled and and then it, it didn't pan out. So you're like, OK, we we'll wait to the next election. And after that election, then maybe I'll, I'll, you know, I'll move on and do something different. And I was at that period, you know, close to 10 years in the job. And I was just thinking, you know, OK, can I do this forever? No. Uh, should I do it forever? No. And then I got an email one day uh, out of the blue and it was from a... I looked at it, it says, oh, Mr. Doyle, you probably don't remember me. Um, my name is Roland Dan. And, <laughs> and I immediately remembered who Roland Dan was. Roland Dan was a, a young refugee who would have been about six years old. I'd done the series reporting on these refugees who were fleeing. They're Montagnards, ethnic minority, little tribes from Vietnam, who'd been fleeing the, the, after protesting for land rights and protection of forests, all sorts of things in Vietnam. 
And there was the, these are the first protests in Vietnam since 1975, the, you know, the, the, the reunification or, and the defeat of the South. And these are the first protests, mass protests in Vietnam since 1975, as by the ethnic minorities in the central highlands of Vietnam. And of course, the Vietnamese government just wanted to squ you know, squash these protesters. And so thousands of them start fleeing into Cambodia, ethnic minority tribes people, um, and they're called the Montagnards. Um, and of course, the Cambodians are so close to the Vietnamese, they would deny, they were denying it was the presence of any of these refugees in the forest. And what they were doing was sending in the army and police to headhunt them and then deport them back forcefully into, uh, into Vietnam. So it was a huge, big silence trying to keep journalists out. Of course, that was exactly what they couldn't do is keep journalists out. So I'd covered the Montagnard um, refugee crisis um, from the very beginning, actually. But in the very early, and we were writing reports about this, this refugee crisis that the government denying was taking place. Government in Plan saying there's no refugees. And we were up in the forest for months on end, you know, using satellite phones and, and getting stories back to Phnom Penh, taking pictures of hundreds of refugees in really difficult circumstances in the forests that the government was denying were there, that the UN said they didn't know anything about. Uh, and then, but our reporting gave loads of momentum to the diplomatic corps in Phnom Penh and the UN to be able to gain access to this region of the country. But one of the stories I featured was this eight, six-year-old girl in the forest, Roland Dan. And we put the picture on the front page of this child in the forest at the time when the government said there was no refugees and where Cambodia Daily is publishing stories from us, you know, us up in the jungle, you know, and uh, Roland Dan featured on the front page. What eventually happened is the UN gained access, Roland Dan and her family um, were they taken under the, under the protection of UN Refugee Agency. And eventually they were resettled in America. So there I was, sitting in my newsroom, almost 10 years in a job, kind of, you know, this kind of existential question about everything. And I got this email, which is from Roland Dan saying, you probably don't remember me, um, but I was, you know, six years old in the forest when uh, you helped my family. And I'm now in the US and I'm about to graduate and go to, to university. And I'd just like to thank you very much for, for helping my family. And I said, there you go. That's the sign. Uh, and then I, I, that day I wrote the, uh, an email to my publisher saying, I need to step down. After 10 years, I thought that's it. That's the sign. I'd accomplished one thing. So. Wow, that's... Incredible. That's almost like some that easily could be a film. Wow, you get get your name onto onto some sort of a screenplay for that. Holy crap! I yeah. when you were telling the thing about the sending pedophiles to prison, I thought, wow, that's a brilliant kind of direct action. I wonder that's that's incredible. But then I didn't it, send them, I didn't send them to prison. Well, I mean, just our reporting did, and <laughs> the reporting in, in, in the one particular case. Right. So they had all the evidence there in the court. And what they had was a, a computer, right, with hard drives and everything else. Of course, in Cambodia, they had no idea what all that was. So I was able to, you know, explain what a hard drive was. And you plug this in here and you plug that in there. And if you double clicked on that file, you might see what's on the hard drive. Oh, lo and behold, they saw what was on the hard drive. So. Um, I mean, that's still a massive, you know, contribution. Of course, you weren't you know, picking them up like Superman, flying them over to the, to the prison and dropping them in. But, you know, yeah, still, yeah. Um, wow, that's, have you ever considered writing a, a memoir or anything about like your, your time in Cambodia? Maybe you have, and I haven't read it yet. Well, no, 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 actually it's, it's you know, when, when, when you step down after 10 years and, and a job like that, I said, oh, what do I do now? I said, oh, I write my memoirs. And then you start and you're like, my God, who do want to listen to my memoirs? I don't even want to listen to them. I don't even want to hear my own voice, you know? So, uh, I mean, and there's also, you can be too close to a story. So um, I, yeah, I kind of started and then I, I dropped it. As I said, I just got tired of listening to myself write, you know, certain chapter introductions. Um, so yeah, I kind of shelved those kind of introductory chapters, but I've had enough distance from Cambodia now and Cambodia's changed an awful lot. As I said, the Cambodia Daily was shut down in 2017 by the government, finally. I mean, in some ways, you know, the Cambodia Daily, I used to say this, when people say to me, oh, what, oh, isn't it, you know, dangerous when they shut down your paper? And I says, yes, that's what they should do, because that's what we're here to be done, is to be shut down, because we won't be silenced. So, you know, in a way, it's a kind of a pyrrhic victory that they did shut us down in the end. Um, I, I, I still identify with the newspaper. I said, us, isn't that funny? 
at least you have more of a claim to it than uh, when people say oh we won the league last week and they're talking about man united and you know you're not part of man united like at least you you were part of man united for quite a while so at least you have that to claim for yourself you know you must be quite proud that you you know you guys were such a thorn in their side to to inconvenience them so much that it came to that eventually oh absolutely i mean it was just their weakness that they displayed at the very end and you know in some ways you know people ask me a lot about what i see for the future in cambodia and i i you know what well, everything are signs of the, the the more strength that the regime needs to use to impose its will on the people is the greater sign of its own weakness it needs to shut down the cambodia daily now after we were going for almost 20 years you know it needs to do away with the opposition party after having you know, multi, you know, okay, there was lots of violence and a lot of political assassinations, but there were other parties where there is now just one party, really. So just actually all this power is just, in fact, examples of the regime's weakness. And, you know, it's, 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 it may look like it's strong, but in fact, all the strength is just its weakness. So, you know, um, I, I see, you know, when people, especially Cambodians, are, are, can be very pessimistic about you know, the future of their country because it's so authoritarian now much more so than it was um, 20 years ago. Um, I say, no, you just be patient because I think the future of what's going to take place in Cambodia has yet to be written. You know, or, you know, unfortunately in some ways too, because these sorts of transitions are never going to be smooth. And Cambodia, you know, is, I think its story is it's still ahead of it, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. Um, and to sort of jump back in time, further um it's it, it's a little bit like pulp fiction you know the beginning is the middle and the end is the, the <laughs> center um so like whenever you first started to before you went to Cambodia did you have any idea of what you wanted to do for a living you know before you went to volunteer did you think oh communications is the route that I want to go down or you know was there any was there like an influence within your your sort of background that kind of pushed you one way or the other it's a really good question. Uh, it's funny you should bring that up. Um, well, I grew up in the 80s and, you know, we only had, our options were different flavours of unemployment, really, you know, and either be unemployed in Ireland or you go to England or you go to America, go to Australia. I mean, that's my generation. That's what we did. We left Ireland. You didn't stay, you know. Now, I, I kind of did. I was in different circumstances. Other people are just, you know, I was kind of luckier. Not, I mean, same kind of, you know, not, not from any sort of, you know, privileged background, but just I actually had the job. Um, but I also had this, you know, yearning to get out of Ireland, and which is always a good thing. I need to see the world. Uh, but, when I, but it was when I was in Cambodia and I was volunteering, uh, you know, in, in, you know as a, as a, as in, 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 you know, kind of AA projects. I saw the international aid industry at work. You know, I'd be at meetings at UNICEF and all these really big, you know, international organizations. And I was organizing a project for street children. So very you know, on the ground and stuff. Um, and I go to their offices, you know, UN offices or big NGO offices. And I couldn't believe the wealth that, you know, and the privilege, you know, just, just the lifestyles of these international development workers lived. And I went, this is not my experience. I mean, this just doesn't, you know, make any sort of sense when it comes to you, which may be, you know, you're working in poverty reduction and you got, you know, you're, you're living the most privileged lives in really poor countries. I was just, you know, I, could, I couldn't believe it, you know? And then I started to interact a lot with journalists because I, these international journalists were coming into Cambodia and my story, the project I was working, I was coordinating a project for street children in Phnom Penh. So I was being interviewed by a lot by journalists. And uh, I went, oh my God, I'm much more on the side of journalists than I am on, you know, I identify much more with these kind of intrepid journalists trying to write about, you know, make it, you know, bring to the attention of, you know, international audiences, what's taking place in Cambodia. And we're really interested in the project I was running. And they just seemed, you know, oh, anyway, I just, on my, you know, I was much more drawn to journalism than I was to international aid and development. Um, so that's where I made this, this shift. So I came back to Ireland and did, that's when I did a degree in communications. Um, but before that, I'd, you know, I'd been reading a lot of John Pilger and that sort of stuff. So I was, you know, 
I was always, you know, current affairs and, you know, um, that sort of stuff. So, but I never, I never saw myself as a journalist, you know, I've maybe because I, I didn't know anyone in it. I didn't know how you start out to be a journalist. I didn't know how it worked, you know, until I actually saw it in the field and I saw journalists work. I went, okay, that's what you do. <laughs> so uh, I came back and did a degree in communications and the MAJ at DCU. And then I had a go with it myself. And, and I haven't, and I haven't looked back really. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. And um, so you know, you must have been kind of going through those uh, four years, I suppose, uh, in DCU, kind of seeing everything through the prism of how can I apply this to, you know, working in Cambodia? How can I, how can I sort of focus these skills towards, you know, the goal that you had in mind? And it reminds me of a time that I asked you once, like. Uh, what module would you love to teach in DCU? And you said, I think, um, international reporting. So I was wondering, do you think that's kind of an overlooked area of journalism in this country that, you know, we're not really sort of, it used to be the, the, the land of saints and scholars and we are exporting all these writers and people across the world. Do you think that's kind of been left behind um, in this current age? Um, I think... <sighs> It's very interesting because Irish journalists make very good international correspondence and Irish journalists are in some of the senior roles, you know, in all the news organisations, AFP, Reuters, yeah, you name it. You'll find our, you know, and the BBC, of course, geez, some of our best journalists the country's ever produced work for the BBC and they work internationally. I think maybe I, okay, let's... Getting back to quite something that's quite important. I think it starts out maybe in, in the focus in much the Irish media sector. There's very little focus on international news. I mean, I listen to, to RT Radio 1 and, you know, what, what's that uh, from our, the, kind of the, the Irish for our RT's version from our own correspondent is World Report. And it's like it's on, was it 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday? And it's, and now I've contributed to World Report a couple of times. I, hey, I, was, I, you know, I was really glad of the coverage. But, you know, this, you know, this, this is World Report, you know, very early on the Sunday morning kind of speaks volumes for the focus, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, international news at RTE, I feel. I mean, and that's the national broadcaster. And then I suppose you see the, you know, the, in the national newspapers. Now, to be honest, my mind and me, I'm still, my journalism consumption is still very much focused on Asia. It hasn't really changed and internationally. So I'm not really an authority on the Irish media sector at all. But I, I just know there's, you know, the, I think, you know, the, the, but even when I talk, think about 20 years ago and, and that before I left, you know, there was very little focus on international news. I mean, international news for Ireland means America, um, maybe Australia. Um, of course, when we follow what's going on in the UK, Europe, uh, probably more now. So I think it probably starts there. What kind of journalists thinking, okay, can I be an international journalist? Can I work internationally? I think because, you know, the, maybe the, this, we're a little bit like frog in a well. I want to be a journalist. And you think, okay, maybe I'll work in, in, in Ireland. I think, yeah, the, the, I, I think it'd be nice to kind of, to bring to the attention of young Irish journalists that there is a huge world of journalism out there. There's international media organizations, all the wire services, you know, Agence France Press, Reuters, Associated Press, the German Press Organization, Deutsche Press Organization, they all have bureaus all over the world. Now, the, the, of course, resources are always a problem. There's fewer jobs than there ever were, but there are great positions to work internationally, you know, the BBC as well. Um, uh, and there's, and of course, all the, the, the main brands as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it'd be nice to kind of bring a kind of cognizance of this, that there is a world out there and that Irish journalists travel really well. We don't have a colonial baggage we bring with us. You know, we, we actually see the world very differently. And, the, you know, the rest of the world, what we do, and, you know, I'm talking about my, my generation anyway, we, you know, we didn't see it from that kind of either the American view or the British view or, you know, the, you know we were kind of had a different view of the world and our place in it. And also when it came to, you know, traveling in these countries, you don't have the baggage of, of, of the, the larger countries. You have, in, fact, in fact, you're Irish. People know you. Oh, yeah. You know, the Irish don't come with, 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 with you know, maybe some of the baggage of, of other organizations and journalists from other countries as well. So that always helped. Um, 
So I always think the, the Irish have an advantage in some ways as international correspondents and reporters. And I think that'd be something really important to develop. Um, because uh, I think the world needs Irish journalists. Now, maybe I'm being a bit arrogant here, but just not to have that American, British centric view of the world or, you know, uh, particularly in a world now we're seeing that's you know, increasingly divided again along this kind of east-west lines, Russia, China, you know, the whole Cold War kind of period is kind of re-establishing itself in some ways. I think there's a need for journalists with, you know, with, with a broader kind of perspective and view of things. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great point. I've never sort of thought of it like that in terms of the whole sort of wider geopolitics kind of, um, you know, uh, what would you call it? Third world kind of view. I always thought it was interesting the way, you know, third world country originally would have included Ireland because it was, you know, the first world was the the US side of the Cold War, second world, the, the Soviet, and then the third was just those sort of inconvenient places that didn't really choose a side. Um, but I suppose... On that point, Jamie, I think that's what I'm trying to talk about. That this kind of we we we're lucky as Irish journalists, we understand what it means to be a small country, you know, that has a history of colonialism, that has a history of you know um, being at the the wrong end of relations with a, with a, with a more a more powerful neighbour. And this is you know the situation in many countries around the world that Irish people can understand what that feels like when it comes to media coverage, when it comes to you know relations and politics. We understand civil war. We understand, you know, a, a political system that grew out of, you know, a civil war where the parties are defined more by the allegiance of war than they are by any sort of, you know, strict political ideology, which is what you find in that. That's what Cambodian politics is based upon, you know? Um, so that gives us an understanding that, you know, journalists from other parts of the world don't understand and can really kind of get a perspective on easily. They can, you know, they, they, they can grow into that understanding. But Irish people, you know, understand that intrinsically, you know, and Irish journalists do, or should. Yeah, I'd imagine like British and American journalists, just the sort of, it's almost like an indoctrination just by, of, by virtue of their own sort of upbringing and education, especially in, you know, Britain specifically, where most journalists are from sort of higher up classes and they're not really taught very much about Britain's history in other parts of the world, uh, you know, from an objective way where I could easily imagine, you know, of course not, this is very, this is very generalizing, but, um, you know, British journalists being overseas reporting on something uh, and being like, you know, seeing it from the perspective of, oh, I guess this is just what happens. I guess is, this is just the natural way of things compared to, you know, an Irish journalist, journalist being like, hmm, this seems pretty you know, messed up, someone should cover this, you know, this kind of exploitation or just whatever the specific issue would be. Yeah, there's, I would say there's, from my limited uh, viewpoint on things as a 20 year old living in Ireland, I'd imagine there's quite this sort of uh, uh, split there in perspective, like. Yeah, I suppose, but you know, of course you, we, you, we shouldn't generalize and can't generalize. I suppose I'm just talking, I know, I mean, brilliant American journalists, brilliant British, brilliant French journalists. I'm just about as, as, you know, as Irish journalists, maybe I always felt anyway, that, you know, the experience of being of Ireland gave me an advantage, <laughs> you know, covering particularly some of the, the, the conflicts in Southeast Asia. Um, definitely. I felt it gave me an advantage over this, you know. And to again, hop back to your time studying at DCU, um, have you noticed its kind of way of teaching things has evolved since you uh, came back to yourself teach? I mean, of course, you know, the technical methods and et cetera and would have changed quite a lot. But I mean, in a sort of the values that they would kind of try and impart on people who are looking to do, you know, communications related work or maybe like the sort of the core philosophies maybe wouldn't be the right word but um you know the way that things are taught the way that you're supposed to see yourself as a school of communications graduate that kind of thing if you understand you know what i mean yeah i mean uh, 
I suppose I work at this school of communications part-time, you know, um, so uh, um, I'm not beholden in any way to have one view or the other. I suppose, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of the school of communications. I mean, I've just been through the PhD process there and that's like hellish for everyone, you know, and I still come out the end of the, the process and just say, yeah, I mean, the School of Communications was really supportive and it really helped me get through it, you know, without a doubt, the PhD process, that is. Um, so, but also I've kind of, maybe I've got rose-tinted glasses about um, School of Communications because, you know, I did my undergrad there as well. And I, I mean, I, I loved it, you know, I just met really inspirational lecturers uh, at that time. They were absolutely fantastic. Some of them, you know, I'm thinking about people like Luke Gibbons and Eddie Holt and many others, you know, I've, I've failed to mention. Um, they were just brilliant. They were inspirational to me. And I always, I think that's why it's really important, you know, um, the teaching is so important. And, and, you know, uh, and unfortunately, I think this is, you know, I, this is, seems to be, you know, the world over in academia, um, that there's such pressure on lecturers and academic staff to publish and to be published with research that, I mean, I, I've heard this from all, you know, all over the place that, you know, there's the some, you know, maybe the teaching takes a second, uh, you know, a, a second place to the research. Um, and I would hate that to be the case because, you know, it was the, it was the, uh, it was the pedagogy, it was the, the lecturers that inspired me uh, in my undergraduate uh, at DCU. Then, you know, that I went on to do, you know, right, you know, what's, what's definitely been a fulfilling, you know, you know, career to date, you know, in, in journalism and definitely set me in, in a right direction in, in, in the type of journalism I wanted to do and also in communication, understanding the world. And so, no, I so hopefully, and I do see it in, in the School of Communications. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still a great fan of it. I definitely feel that spirit from when I was, you know, that period early on in School of Communications. Now that spirit is definitely still there. Um, and, you know, and I think it's so important, you know, the, the, the interaction with students and, you know, and, and, you know, and hopefully, you know, trying to be that kind of, you know, apart from, you know, just being a good lecturer, but also, or, you know, delivering a good lecture, but also, you know, um, which is really important, but maybe if you have some experience, like a lot of people do, in, in, you know, when it comes to the, the journalism faculty that, you know, that their, that their careers are also an example to the students that are teaching, you know, um, kind of got a bit tripped up there for a bit. I don't think I want to make any huge point, but yeah, I think it, the teaching is so important. Uh, you know, I said, oh yeah, the point I wanted to make, sorry, was I spent a year at Harvard, you know, um, it's primarily at the Kennedy School of Government. I remember at the, you know, the, and some of these very famous lecturers, you know, they were, I mean, the students would applaud, you know, would, would clap as the lecturer <laughs> arrived in the, you know, the auditorium, <laughs> seriously. These are superstars. This is Harvard, you know. And I remember thinking, yeah, but this doesn't, you know, match up with some of the inspirational lectures I had at DCU. So uh, that's uh, that's. I just remember thinking that, you know, I still always think, yeah, well, it's not, you know, definitely. I, 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 I'd encountered better lecturers, kind of more kind of what would you say, kind of, you know, yeah, more deeper, more, more kind of, in, you know, more. Um, introspection and uh and uh questioning you know some of the lectures i had in my undergrad at the school of communications and i'm still a fan um i'm definitely going to consider getting our um entrepreneurial journalism to applaud when you walk in the room just to make you cringe <laughs> oh don't don't ever do that please, please. in fact yeah. you should ask me harder questions <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, you definitely made a great point about um, lectures being sort of a source of inspiration outside of the the kind of thing that they've they teach specifically. Like, um, I can definitely see quite a few people that I've sort of learned a lot from in my time who've been pretty pretty good. Um, shout out to DCU School of Communications. You guys are doing a great job. Um, but I was wondering, um, what is your sort of favorite module that you teach at the minute, either in terms of the content or you kind of like the sort of interactions that it causes you to have with students or, you know, any other factor? Um, 
I, I, you know, I actually, it's funny, I, I teach a lot of this kind of practice-based stuff because maybe that's, be, I'm, I'm maybe a bit typecast because I was an editor-in-chief for a decade. So I know a lot about news writing and news, news reporting, principles, practices, all that sort of stuff. So I can see why, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm definitely, uh, uh, you know, I can be, you know, used, you know, I can be applied to these, these modules and because, you know, I have that experience. Uh, I suppose I actually I one of my one of my favorite models I thought was was journalism the hybrid media system which was Eugene Professor Eugenia Cyperas course that we taught a couple of years ago before Eugenia went over to UCD to head up the department there communications and computer science uh, I really enjoyed that course um, I think it you know it's a way of thinking about you know social media the hybrid media system and journalism how it all you know interacted in court, you know, and, and is, is um, how'd you say, intertwined and tried to understand journalism in that hybrid media system. I really enjoyed that because that actually aligns much more with my own PhD, you know, and well, my, my own PhD is not about journalism. It's about, you know, communications, communications in an authoritarian context and the medium being social media. Um, and so that's, you know, my area, I'm, you know, I, I've been a journalist, but actually, you know, my, my, what I like to teach is communications, and particularly, you know, the, you know, and this idea of, you know, agency and structure, and the role of the individual in society and communications, and in authoritarian contexts, what that actually means for communications, and again, you know, how that then, you know, the meaning of that in political contexts, and what that actually may mean for authoritarian governments, and then maybe, you know, uh, democracy. And you know the emergence of, or the submersion of you know democratic forces and voices. You know, so that's that's my area of interest. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you chose it. Um, and so to kind of begin sort of wrapping things up, I was wondering, uh, do you what what is your favorite book, or maybe a different way of putting oh. that would be what would be the sort of book that you find yourself recommending to people time and time again for, for whatever reason? Ah, uh, that is a great question. <laughs> okay. If it, I've got my, my kind of my top five when it comes to, you know, cause I'm in Southeast Asia is kind of the, a, a, you know, my, my area, but I suppose one of the best books, definitely one of the best, best books written on the kind of the Vietnam, Cambodia um, period that in the Vietnam war is a book called river of time. Um, and it's written by John Swain, and if he was a uh, he was it would have been the Financial Times correspondent. I, no, he was Agent Agent France Press during the Vietnam War and in Cambodia. And he's written this book called River of Time, which is kind of a memoir of his, and it's just beautifully written. And I would recommend any young journalist, either they've got an interest in that part of the world or not, to 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 read that book because it's just a beautiful book reflection on being a journalist and doing journalism. And um, so that's that's a really um, um, that's that's one of my recommendations, and the second book I suppose I mean is Dispatches. Um, that's Michael Hare, isn't it? Yeah, Dispatches. He was he was he was uh, he was an Esquire. He was covering the the Vietnam War for, and it's just a really brilliant uh, book. Um, who else? What else? Third one. Anything by Richard Kapuscinski. I really like his journalism. Now I know it's quite controversial. Um, but, you know, the Shah Shahs and, you know, all these books are really well written. Now, there's a big question about, you know, how, you know, you know, the accuracy about Kapuskinski's books, you know, and I, but I think you've some people told maybe magical journalism um, is a, maybe a kind of a, a, um, a, a, a I would just say a, a polite way of, of, of trying to recategorize his genre if, you know, his journalism, if his writing wasn't, you know, reportage and journalism, but it was kind of a bigger sense of, 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 uh, of places that he, he, he reported on. He was, the po he was a Polish correspondent um, and he, he'd written some fantastic books. So I think we're Richard Kapuskinski. Brilliant. Um, and then I suppose like, <laughs> such a, such a, funny a lot of funny but it's such a strange hypothetical to ask but I suppose if you could sort of travel to one sort of setting one place in time and just be a reporter there firsthand on the scene at any time in history 
what would you have to go with? I can already kind of take a guess of what your answer will be, but I, I still love to hear. Yeah, I joke and I'd say, you know, um, what you call it? Tokugawa Shogun in, in, in Japan, you know, but no, uh, it would definitely be, um, uh, it'd definitely be the, the, the Vietnam War for sure. Those correspondence, the access to the battlefield, um, the, the global force that were in play, the, the, the importance of this story and telling it correctly, you know, the huge American intervention in Vietnam and those journalists that are out there at the cutting edge trying, you know, fighting against, you know, the, the disinformation, uh, you know, and the, the kind of the cover-ups by the American military. Uh, yeah, definitely would have been a great time to be a journalist and a really important story. Yeah, yeah that would have been incredible. I could imagine if you had been around back then, maybe so much of the media that is around about the Vietnam War isn't about, you know, poor American soldiers. They're so, they're so, you know, uh, traumatized. Not that that didn't happen, of course, but it's quite uh, sort of the Western media about it is very sort of overly sympathetic to the, you know, people using Agent Orange and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, yeah, brilliant point. And I suppose, lastly, the thing I ask every guest on the show would be, um, what would be sort of your your best advice for journalists kind of either graduating or going into college or have left college trying to make their way in the world right now? I mean, like, for example, you know, if, if you were 20, 21 again, and what would be your kind of... Uh, your sort of goal for for just getting the most done and just succeeding as much as you can at that early stage in your career yeah I, I, oh i suppose a couple of pieces of advice um i suppose yeah um, okay the one would be you know you know don't you if somebody you know i suppose I, I'm, there's, there's kind of the practical one about just you know there don't limit yourself to Ireland. I mean, if you, if, you, if you think you want to be a foreign correspondent, pursue that. It's very possible. I think, you know, as I said, there, it just takes, you know, I suppose Donny O'Sullivan at CNN has proven that to absolutely everyone, you know, um, that, you know, that there's, there's a much larger world of, of, of news than just in Ireland. So, you know, go for it if you really want it, you know, because our Irish journalists make really great um, international correspondence then kind of on a, on a on a on a just kind of you know a, being a journalist basis be true to yourself you know and don't cut corners you know and don't risk it you know there'd be so many pressures you're under as a young journalist you know starting out journalist that you know and and don't be afraid to be different you know there's so much pressure just to kind of you know to toe a particular line or to just fall in with a particular culture. You know, I've never been afraid to also make enemies and um, what's the word for it? And uh, yeah, never been afraid to make enemies. That's it, you know? Um, so, um, but for good reason though, in the sense, you know, that, uh, you know, you, you, your job is to tell the truth. And if that truth telling makes you unpopular, don't be afraid of that. And I've never been afraid of that, you know? As I said, I didn't become a journalist to be liked, you know? Became a journalist because, you know, it, it's important to do, and I've never been afraid to uh, discommode people. You know, there's Bernard Krischer, you know, when you know, I took over the Cambodia Daily's editor-in-chief, I had no idea what to do. And I says, I asked Bernie, the publisher, talk, on the phone, Tokyo, and I says, Bernie, how do I be editor-in-chief? And he says, how you be editor-in-chief is you afflict the comforted and you comfort the afflicted. And he says, that's, your, that's all I want of you to do in that job. And this, that was it. And then he gave me the keys to the, the newspaper. And that's all he said to me. That's all you have to do, you know? So uh, that's, there's my advice. Comfort the afflicted. Um, flick the comfortable and comfortably afflicted. Keep to those. That is, keep to keep to that. That is such a a throwback because I think um, I'm not sure specifically on the exact date, but I think in our first sort of uh, lecture together, I would have been one of my very first ever in 
maybe my actual very first lecture in my entire degree. But uh, I remember you you bringing that up, and I remember I wrote it down in this sort of inside what the word inside cover of whatever book I was using at the time, like right next to my name, and just be like, this is this seems like a good thing to remember for <laughs> for the future. So that's that's um, just very nostalgic to to hear those words again um but yeah brilliant that's a that's a lot of brilliant points made about not limiting yourself like I'd agree completely um and it it reminds me of a few guests I've had who even said uh I asked someone what what their ideal job would be and they said you know I don't like that question uh because I think that probably the ideal job that I want in the future might not even exist yet so I mean it kind of you know it all ties together I suppose in that way But um, yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kevin. Not at all. Great to chat, Jamie. I hope I haven't um, alienated all your, <laughs> your, 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 your listeners uh, and, and, you know, true fans. <laughs> true fans, yeah. But, if, but if, if I have alienated them, it's their problem, not mine. You know, they need to uh, get out in the world a little bit more. <laughs> that, that's 100% true. Not sure if I have a thousand true fans yet, but maybe uh, maybe we'll get there. Yeah. Um, thanks so much again, and thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, keep an eye out for the next episode, and see you soon.